0: Post-modernity has caused us to be suspicious of religion. Post-modernity has caused us to be speculative of religion with the often, often repeated, overused slogan, I don't have religion, I have a relationship. Post-modernity hates religion. Hates doctrine. There's an incredulity to doctrine, for doctrine in post-modernity. And being reformed doesn't help the situation. While we're busy dissecting the pactum, trying to understand its place in the Historia of salutis, debating infralapsarian and superlapsarian, all the while trying to figure out the continuity between the pre divulian age and the post divulian age, and the post-modernity looks at us, cringes, What are you talking about? Throwing their hands up in the air. God is my homeboy, as he walks away. We need religion. We need it. We need religion, but we also need to help our postmodern neighbor. We need to combine religion with relationship. It's called contextualization. We need to give the postmodern, our world loves stories, we've always loved stories, the postmodern loves stories, we need to give them a story of theology, which is easy to do because Christian theology flows from a history, the history of God's unfolding love and grace. And 2 Samuel 21 verses 1 through 14 is such a story. Now you might be thinking a story of loving grace, is pastor reading the same story that I'm reading? Is, Is he reading the same story? What I have seen so far is I've seen wrath. We see wrath, we see death, we see heartbreak. But behind the sorrow is a story of love. Behind the sorrow of this text is a theology of love. It's a story of salvation. Now the last remaining chapters in 2 Samuel are chronologically detached from the previous narratives. Now 2 Samuel is all history but it's just not necessarily chronologic. The ancient authors didn't care to arrange events and dates in the order of their occurrence. The ancient The ancient authors don't share modernity's OCD with scientific prescription. They arrange the Bible theologically. The whole Bible is actually, it's a theological book. And it's often arranged theologically. And the last remaining chapters in 2 Samuel are arranged theologically on purpose. The last remaining chapters of 2 Samuel are from different points of David's life and career. And the narrator has chosen these moments to show us something true. And 2 Samuel 21, 1 through 14, shows us that mercy comes through death. Mercy comes through death and love through heartache. And that's the title of my sermon this morning, this morning Love Through Heartache. We are loved and we are blessed because Christ was cursed. We are loved because God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins love comes through heartache and that is what we find this morning in our text beginning verse 1 now there was a famine in the land there was a famine in the days of David and this famine it says were three years for three years year after year and something is clearly wrong For it's one thing to have a famine, and famines are always wrong in the ancient world because the ancients depended on rain for agriculture. They didn't have water pumps and so forth. There wasn't irrigation pumps. They needed the rain. Three years of famine meant three years of failed harvest, and three years of failed harvest meant scarcity at the table. It's a dire situation, the context. It's very dire. There was a famine in the days for three years, year after year. It was a terrible situation. It was detrimental that they get rain. So David sought the Lord. And David, it says, sought the face of Yahweh. David knew where his help came from. David knew who provided his daily bread. But David also knew something else about this famine. David knew that this famine was biblical. You see, Israel belonged to what we call the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, Israel confessed before the Lord, made an oath to Yahweh. And in that oath that God made with Israel, God declared Israel's obedience. And if Israel was obedient to the covenant, the Lord would bless Israel. If they were faithful to the covenant stipulations, if they obeyed the law, God would bless them. But if they disobeyed, God would curse. And one of the curses was famine. And there was a famine in the, the land for three years. Clearly, something is amiss. Listen to Deuteronomy 28.18. Deuteronomy 28.18, this is from the Mosaic Covenant. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. This is one of the curses in Deuteronomy with the Mosaic covenant. This is one of the curses of covenant disobedience. And David knew the Lord was offended. That's why he sought the Lord. And the Lord said, yes, this is a curse. He said, there is blood guilt. That's also a very biblical word, blood guilt. David knew the Lord was offended. There was a famine in the land because of blood guilt on Saul and on his house, Saul had sinned, and now Israel was paying for it, which doesn't really make sense in our modern minds. Why was Saul, who sinned, why was Saul's sins being paid upon Israel as a people? Easy. Saul was the covenant head of Israel. This is a doctrine of federal headship. Saul stood for the people of God. So whatever Saul did in his blessings, in his obedience, Israel will be blessed. But if Saul failed the covenant, the people will be, uh, would be cursed. He was their representative. And so there was blood guilt. Blood guilt's a very biblical word. Zipporah, remember Zipporah, Moses' wife. She actually called Moses by this name in Hebrew. She called Moses blood guilt. You are a bridegroom of death, blood guilt. Why? Because Moses failed his covenant obligations. And he withheld his children from the covenant of grace. And according to Zipporah, to leave the children without the sign of circumcision was to leave them without God and without hope. They were as good as dead without the sacrament. Blood guilt. That's because according to Moses' wife, at least Moses' wife believed that God's children needed Abraham. We would do well to follow her. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel. Now, who are the Gibeonites? They're not the people of Israel. The narrator is very clear. They're not the people of Israel. He reminds us because we probably don't remember the Gibeonites. They were a remnant, he says, of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. This is Joshua 9. Joshua 9. Basically, in Joshua 9, the Israelites are going into the promised land. We're familiar with the story. And God commanded the Israelites to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. They were to strike them down, all the inhabitants. But the Gibeonites were crafty. And the Gibeonites tricked the Israelites into into remaining in the land. Like the serpent in the garden... The Gibeonites tricked Israel. Israel should have crushed the head of the serpent, but instead they made an oath. They made an oath with these pagans. They made a vow before the Lord, and because of that vow, they had to honor their word. The the word was in Yahweh's name, and God's people always had to keep their vows in Yahweh's name. Joshua informs us that Israel cut a covenant. That's the language, the Berit. They cut a covenant with Gibeon. That is, when they cut the covenant, they took an animal. They took a couple of animals, probably, and they cut these animals in half. They would divide the animals in half and they put their carcasses on either side and made an isle of dead flesh. And then two covenant representatives, both kings of both nations, walked between the pieces of the, of, of the dead animals, and they made a covenant with one another. And those dead animals represent, the sign was the curse of the covenant. Fail to keep the covenant, and you will be divided. You and your people will be divided as these animals here. And now the Gibeonites in chapter 21 are saying, David, keep the covenant. And God demanded it. Thus the famine in the land. Verse three, and David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement? Atonement's a very biblical word. Atonement, it means many things. It means to appease. It means to forgive. It means to smear something over something else, smear something better over something worse, so that the thing that is worse is now smeared with something else. It looks better. It means to satisfy make right Yahweh's wrath must be appeased Yahweh's wrath must be appeased or else now you might be thinking to yourself isn't God love we're talking about all this wrath in church why are we talking all this wrath in church isn't God's love and we would say yes God is love and he loves righteousness He loves holiness. He loves integrity. He loves goodness. Therefore, he hates evil and he hates it with a burning passion and he must consume it. He must rid the cosmos of evil because he's love. He hates sin and must punish it with extreme punishment, both body and soul. So God demands perfect obedience, and He's ready to bless. He's ready to bless anyone who's perfect, obedient, and he's ready to curse anyone who fails. He's righteous. So Paul must pay, excuse me, Saul must pay for his sins. He killed these people. He broke the covenant. He has to pay for his sins, but there's one problem. He's already paying for them. (laughs) He's dead. He's dead. But that's not a problem for ancient covenants because ancient covenants were made with you and your offspring. Ancient covenants were made with you and your children. So we see here in our text the household formula of Scripture it says, The blood guilt on Saul and what? His house. Household inclusion. Failure of a household to the covenant of God, the household is cursed. But on the opposite, obedience in the household, the household is blessed. Verse three, and David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? There's more household inclusion right there, the heritage of the Lord. The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us or Saul or his house. You see, they were they were a slave caste. They had no right to uh, remuneration. And he said, We have no, it's not right for us to put any man to death. They couldn't actually seek retributive justice. And David said, What shall I do for you? They said to the king, We don't have any rights but one. We have the right of the covenant. We're claiming the covenant. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the territory of the land, let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord. They wanted a religious sacrifice before the Lord. That's what that means. A religious rite at Gibeah of Saul. They wanted to do it in Saul's hometown. The chosen of the Lord. And Saul said, no, I'm not doing that. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. i got to protect my people. You are strangers and aliens in the land. You don't belong here. You're the offspring of the serpent. We were supposed to crush your head, so on and so forth. He could have defended, but he didn't. Because the narrator put this text in this place to teach us a valuable lesson, to teach us covenant theology, of course. But to show us, yes, Israel has had an unfaithful king, and because of that unfaithful king, there are curses now in Israel. But the narrator is showing us, but there's a faithful king who's obedient and blesses his people. You see, Israel faced God's wrath because of one king's sin, so another king needed to lift the curse. And we know the lifting of the curse is not going to be easy. We know it's not going to be easy because we've already seen the words atonement and bloodshed. The words atonement and bloodshed are showing us that this is going to be a very terrible chapter in God's word. Because the business of satisfying God's wrath is terrible business. You see, we often as Christians and modern Christians, we often forget how bloody Christianity is. This is a very bloody religion. And we forget how bloody it is because we don't read the Old Testament. We forget how bloody it is because we don't read Leviticus enough. You read Leviticus, you're gonna realize it's a very bloody religion. We don't realize how bloody this religion is because we have encrusted our crosses with diamonds. And we forget how bloody this religion is because we have forgotten how holy and terrifying Yahweh truly is is it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy god now the ancients they did not forget they didn't forget how terrifying god was because they had famines because of god's wrath they didn't forget how, God, how terrifying God was because when they went to worship, they had to take a spotless lamb and they slaughtered it and smeared its blood all over their worship. Their worship services looked and smelled of death. Death was everywhere. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And you and I need to see Just how much God hates sin. So the narrator in 2 Samuel put chapter 21 right here to show us how much God hates sin, and we're about to see it. Strap in. It's going to be a hard one. (laughs) Verse 4, these seven Gibeonites were offered. Verse 6, 5 and 6, David David hands them over. But then verse 7, before we see the sacrifice... We're reminded, verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth. Spared is a very important biblical word, it means to show mercy. And the narrator here wants you to see that there is a king who's faithful. There is a king in Israel who spares. He spared the Saul, he spared son of Saul's, Jonathan, his, uh, because of the oath of the Lord. That's the narrator saying there's another covenant here in this text. This is the covenant David made with Jonathan. He made a covenant with Jonathan to spare, to protect, to show mercy and grace to his sons, his children, to his household, household inclusion, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, this chapter is mostly about covenant breaking, and this chapter is mostly about curse and wrath, but here, just for a few minutes, we get to see the opposite. We get to see covenant blessings. We get to see covenant faithfulness and salvation, Mephibosheth saved, spared, redeemed from death. The narrator includes this to show us there is a king who keeps covenants and there is a king who blesses his people. Verse eight and nine, the king took the two sons of Rizpah. So now he gathers the seven sons of Israel. He took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Berizalai and Melethite, the Mahalathite. Here's the verse nine, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them. They hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. That phrase before the Lord means this was a religious service. This was a religious rite. Now, so far, this story has been very cold and calculated. And one might dare say this is kind of pagan, right? Isn't it the pagans who call for death rituals? Isn't it the pagans who call for death rituals to appease the gods? Isn't it the pagans who throw the virgin in the volcanoes to appease the wrath of the gods? Is this paganism? Is justice paganism? Is satisfaction for sins paganism? Is holiness paganism? Is mercy paganism? The story is far from pagan. It's far from cold and calculated, as is demonstrated by the next scene. He hung them. They hung them before the Lord, and, the seven, uh, and they perished together. They hung them the seven on them on the mountain. They perished together. It says, they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of of barley harvest verse 10 and now the narrator shows us something something we really need to see this is very important then rispa the daughter of aya the daughter of aya the mother of these two children two of these that were put to death took sackcloth spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. Now the brother, excuse me, the narrator brings a mother into the scene. The narrator could have left the mother out of the scene. We don't really need to see her remorse her pain but the narrator introduces the narrator brings her into the scene and as he brings her into the scene he slows the narrative down with all of these descriptions of the mother and he slows the story down so that you can see this mother losing her two children and the narrator wants you to see the pain and anguish of this dear mother no greater pain a mother can have in this world than losing a child, and she's just lost two. And the narrator wants you to see the heartache. He gave us a mother's anguish because he wants us to see both sides of the atonement. He wants you to see that there are two sides to the atonement there is justice. there's heartache there is strict accountability there's also pain and sorrow and a mother's broken heart and she couldn't prevent the executions she couldn't prevent the exposure but she could protect their dignity dignity so she stayed out there and she fought off the beasts and the birds of the air and she stayed out there as long as it took and the mother's love gripped David. David heard the story. Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah had done, the concubine of Saul had done, David went and took the bones. And the story of this mother grips his heart. It gripped his heart, and so he sought to be faithful to Saul and to his household. David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. So he goes and he gets these bones. They're just still out there in the elements. He left them there in the elements. He goes and he gets the bones of these men, and he goes and gets the sons of Saul, these seven sons, And he brought, verse 13, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zila, in the tomb of Kish his father, and they all did what the king commanded. David honored the dead. The mother's honor, the mother's love caused him to honor the dead. And the end result of all of this was appeasement. Verse 14, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. And we already see subtly that God responded in verse 10. If you notice, it says, the mother of Rizpah, right, she was out there, it says when, until rain fell upon the bodies, rain fell The atonement was made. The sacrifice had been given and God was pleased. The death of this mother's sons ended the famine. Paganism has sacrifice. Paganism does have sacrifice, but paganism is hopeless. Paganism is cruel. It is dark. God however is just and merciful. He didn't leave he didn't leave Israel in their sin. He didn't just leave them in their sin, he didn't just simply expose them to his wrath. But even in his wrath he was merciful for he declared to them their sins and misery. He showed them their sins and misery and he showed them how they were delivered from their sins and misery. They had a faithful king because they had an unfaithful king. And because they had an unfaithful king, God gave them a faithful king. One who broke the covenant, they gave him, he gave them one who keeps the covenant. That's why the narrator puts this chapter in this text to show Israel that there is a true faithful king who keeps his covenant. And this text has its corollary in the New Testament. 1 John 4.10, we read here, 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The mother's pain here is the anguish God faced in sacrificing his own son. You need to look at Rizpah. You need to look into the eyes of this dear mother. You need to look into the eyes of her pain. And you need to see the wrath of a holy God. This is the wrath of a holy God right here in the pain and agony of a mother who lost her children. God is just. And it is terrifying. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. But God is likewise merciful. And you need to look again at Rispa, and you need to look into her eyes, and in her pain and anguish, you find the love of God. He paid this price. God paid the sacrifice, the father who loved his only begotten and sent him. And the father sacrificed his only begotten son. That says something very true to the church. His only begotten son he gave. And this is also the love of Christ who willingly satisfied the wrath of a holy God, which is terrifying business. So on that day of the atonement, it became dark, darkness came over the scene of the cross, right? And over the scene of the cross, there was darkness. And that darkness was the judgment and curse of God on Christ. And Christ cried out in terrifying agony, in his agony, and in his pain of forsakenness. Because he became sin. And he died. The sacrifice. This is atonement. Christ satisfied God's wrath that we might be shown mercy. In this story, we are Mephibosheth. If you trust in Christ, as death passed over Mephibosheth because of covenant faithfulness, death has passed over you. You see, David's commitment to Jonathan's son points beyond itself to the faithfulness of Christ who said to his father, I have lost none that you have given me. I have lost none and I will raise them up on the last day. And he is the good shepherd who will lose none of his sheep. He says, I will lose none. No matter your sins and your misery, you're worth losing by the way. We all are, but he will lose none. And death is past because Christ is our federal head. His covenant faithfulness blesses future generations. His blood anoints households. So Christ has committed himself to you and your children. Truly the gospel comes with a house key. The doors open your house and take you and all your children. You see, children as well as their parents belong to the covenant and people of God, and through the blood of Christ, both redemption from sins and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to parents. So this grieving mother, if you look again at the grieving mother, there is some comfort. She's grieving on the mountain of Geboa, but she has comfort. And that comfort's found at the mountain of Golgotha. Because Golgotha was promised to her and to her children through the sacrament of circumcision. And if you want to know something about Abraham's covenant, go see Zipporah. And Zipporah will tell you that God's promises are yes and amen. Zipporah will say Christianity is more than a relationship. It is a religion, and God's religion is true, and his promises to you are true. Believe, and when you combine religion and relationship, you see the greatness of God's love for us miserable sinners, and you see that his love comes and came through heartache. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.